you would please uh, open the Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verses 50 to 53, which you'll find on page 885 in the Pew Bible. Uh, you'll also find it printed in the bulletin, and of course you have your smartphone with your own Bible most likely, so feel free to look it up in any of those places. But it would be helpful to have it open in front of you because we're making reference to it throughout. If you would, please stand. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, beginning at verse 50. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to be together this morning. We're thankful, Father, for the fellowship we share in Christ. We're so thankful for him, for all that he has done for us. Uh, Gracious Father, send your spirit powerfully upon us. Pry open our cold, resistant hearts. And give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word this morning, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. I mentioned last week, I'll say again, I'm a bit of of an Anglophile. I have been a long time. My poor wife teases me about it occasionally. Um, I uh, love things English. And uh, this weekend was particularly important for those of us who are Anglophiles uh, because there was a little bit of a happening in London on Saturday of this week, yesterday. Uh, Early, early our time, midday their time, the new king, Charles III, was uh, crowned at Westminster Abbey and uh, I got up at about 4.30. I know at least my son William was up at the same time with his daughter uh, who got up, her, his little baby daughter got up with him and uh, we watched the um, coronation of of Charles III on television maybe one or two of you did the same thing it was a beautiful ceremony I've got to say the English really know how to do those things extremely well and it was a beautiful beautiful service it was a rainy day in London uh, as it often is and the streets around Westminster Abbey and Buckingham Palace were nevertheless packed Throngs of people had gathered to watch their new king as he made his way to the abbey and from the abbey to the palace. And uh, it, was, it was a beautiful thing to see uh, all the crowds so excited to meet their new king. And uh, the service in Westminster Abbey was particularly beautiful. Uh, most of it's available on, on YouTube. Uh, even if you're not an Anglophile, it is a beautiful ceremony. Beautifully done, uh, beautifully videoed. Uh, there was some magnificent music, including some music that had been written for the occasion. Uh, in fact, there was uh, one song that was particularly beautiful. It was the first song in Welsh. Prince, uh, King Charles was formerly the Prince of Wales. Well, he commissioned a special new piece of music to be sung at his coronation. It was the first time in a thousand years that a song in Welsh was sung as part of the coronation. Uh, it was absolutely beautiful. Uh, it was uh, a setting of the um, Kyrie eleison, uh, the, a traditional part of the service, which was written in, uh, in Welsh and sung uh, magnificently by a very talented bass baritone opera singer named Bren Turfell. 
that is available on YouTube. I very highly recommend it. It's a moving piece of music. And, of course, one of the highlights at every coronation uh, since 1727 has been an anthem written by Handel, who wrote uh, The Messiah, the famous piece of music that we sing at uh, Christmas and Easter. Uh, Handel wrote a piece of music for the coronation of English kings and queens. And so this song has been, this anthem has been sung uh, beautifully at every coronation since the 1700s called Zadok the Priest. And it's a setting of an Old Testament text that Handel uh, took and put into beautiful music. And it's also stirring. It's one of the highlights. I'm going to actually mention that a bit further along in my sermon. All of this was going on in, in my life and in my head. Uh, this week, thinking about it, being prepared for it, reading all the things leading up to the service, reading about the liturgy, reading about the giving of the Bible, which I mentioned last week, that did happen. And it was the moderator of the Presbyterian Church which presented the king with a copy of the Bible. And the king received it and actually kissed it. It was an interesting gesture of, of at least liturgically uh, his intention to honor the Bible and to uh, serve his office in light of the Bible. We'll see if he lives up to that or not. But it was, a, it was a beautiful, beautiful thing, and all that happened. So that's been in my head as I've been preparing for my sermon this morning. And you'll notice I've, uh, I've sort of borrowed from contemporary events to give my sermon title this morning. This is where it comes from, The Resurrected Christ's Cosmic Coronation. Some of us have been thinking a lot about coronations. Well, this little section, these few verses at the very end of the Gospel of Luke amount in some ways to a cosmic version of what we saw happen in London uh, yesterday. But of course, what was a small, beautiful, but small national celebration in Luke 24 verses 50 to 53 is a cosmic celebration. A cosmic experience, a cosmic event, infinitely more meaningful, infinitely more significant than any crowning of a, of a mere human king here in this world in our day. But that's kind of what the ascension is. The ascension, in a very significant way, is, is the, the moment at which Jesus' kingship becomes visible to us. In, in a particular way. And we'll talk about the significance. We're doing a sermon series on the meaning of the resurrection. Well, the ascension is connected intimately to the resurrection. And the ascension gives extreme emphasis. It underscores, if you will, spiritually. The uh, full expression of what the resurrection teaches us. So resurrection and ascension go together, and they amount to, if you will, a kind of cosmic coronation. So forgive that, that illustration, but hopefully it'll help us understand what's happening here in these closing verses of Luke's gospel. I've only got two points for us to think about this morning. One is the resurrected Christ blessed his disciples. That's central to our understanding of what happens at the end of Luke's gospel. He blessed his disciples. And then secondly, his disciples worshipped the resurrected Christ. So those are the two points we'll be keeping in mind as we make our way through these short verses uh, this morning. The resurrected Christ 
blessed his disciples. Look at verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. Uh, The Lord blessed his disciples. Now, in some ways, that may not sound very dramatic. Uh, You may be thinking it sounds fairly, uh, uh, I don't know, unimportant almost, because we, we tend to think of blessing as something relatively unimportant in some ways. We, we throw that word around quite freely. We talk about being blessed and we don't always necessarily mean very much by it. We should because the idea of blessing is a, is a deeply significant category of the spiritual life in both Old and New Testament. Blessing is extremely important for us to understand God's purpose from the very beginning and his purpose today. In fact, if you look back to the Old Testament, you do a, in English even, just, just scan the word bless, blessing, blessed, variations on that idea. You'll see it shows up dozens and dozens and dozens of times in highly significant places. For instance, uh, we read about uh, God making a promise to Abraham to bless Abraham and to bless the world through Abraham. Uh, we read about God blessing King David and God blessing King Solomon and God blessing the people of Israel over the long history of his relationship with them. Uh, we read about prayers of blessing. Uh, one of the most famous prayers of blessing is in uh, Leviticus uh, chapter 9, verse 22, where Aaron, uh, who is Moses' protege, uh, lifts his hands to offer a prayer. And in Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, we actually read the words of that blessing. It might even be worth, if you don't mind, keep your finger in Luke 24, verse 50, and flip over to Numbers chapter 6, verse 22. Look over at Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, which you'll find in the Pew Bible on page uh, 114. You'll see the ESV editors have actually set this prayer of blessing apart by a little notation. Aaron's blessing. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, this is verse 22. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. That uh, blessing, Aaron's blessing, uh, became a central part of the uh, Hebrew liturgy, the Jewish liturgy. This was a a blessing that was from Aaron who lifted his hands when he made this prayer, uh, passed from Aaron right down through the centuries, all the way through the history of God's uh, dealings with his people. This idea that, that God specifically wanted his people to know that he was going to bless them that he would uh, keep them, that he would make his face to shine upon them, that he would lift up his countenance upon them, and that he would give them peace. God instructed Aaron to deliver this blessing because that, from the very beginning, has been God's intention, to bless his people. And wrapped up in this idea of blessing, 
it's, it's so many things. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that bad things will never happen. We see many, many instances in the Old Testament how bad things happen. But even in the midst of the bad things, in the midst of all the realities of life, God wanted his people to know that he would not, not take his face from them, that he would not look away from them, that he would bless them, even in the times of hardship. And there were many, but God wanted his people to know that he intended to bless them. So, flip back to Luke chapter 24. In verse 50, they go out as far as Bethany, a little town, a suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem. And Jesus lifts up his hands. Um, Again, we may not think very much of that expression, but if you look in the margin notes of my Greek New Testament, you'll see that that expression, he lifted his hands, that's a marker. That, that's a, that is an expression that ties us back to Aaron and to all the blessings of God in the Old Testament through Aaron. So Luke is telegraphing something here. He's he's telling us that what Jesus is doing at the end of the Gospel of Luke is connected to what God did through Aaron, what God had been doing through the centuries, blessing his people. Here was the physical manifestation, the physical representation of what God had always promised to do, what God had always done even in the hard times, and what God did perfectly in Christ. And that's wrapped up in this parting scene of Jesus with his disciples in this this very intimate way. It's at the end of 40 days of teaching, Acts 1 tells us, uh, from uh, Easter morning right through the 40th day, which is the Thursday of the Ascension. All that time, Jesus had been teaching his disciples. He had been teaching them how he fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. How he had fulfilled the promises of Moses. How he had fulfilled the promises of the prophets. How he had fulfilled the the promises of the Psalms. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And it's summed up here in his cosmic coronation, if you will, as he blesses his disciples. He lifts his hands and he blesses them. Verse 51, it's like it's underscoring this idea of blessing. And once again, same Greek word, verse 51. While he blessed them. It says in verse 50, he did it. Verse 51, he says, while he was doing it, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. I love a line I read from Ligon Duncan. Ligon Duncan is the president of Reformed Seminary, a great preacher. He had this to say about this verse. He says, the very last thing, His disciples see Jesus doing to them, is blessing them. It is the last sight they have of Jesus. It is of him blessing them. It really is quite stirring to think about that. that, uh, That's the very last memory they had of Jesus in his flesh was his lifting his hands and blessing them. It says he was, he was uh, taken from them. He was carried up into heaven. And uh, we'll, we'll think more about that. But that's, that's the very last memory they have 
of the, of the resurrected Christ in his flesh was extending this blessing. Brothers and sisters, you and I are blessed people. Um, you may not feel blessed this morning. I don't know. You, you, you certainly clean up really good. You look nice. Uh, you look like you're, everything's going great. I know full well that there are lots of us who are going through tough times. There are lots of us who are experiencing difficulties, sickness, financial problems, relationship problems. I want you to know that in the midst of all of the challenges of this life, in Christ, God is blessing us. How is he blessing us? He's blessing us with one another. You know, one of the great things about gathering Sunday by Sunday is we become part of a community. We take community very seriously here at Metrocrest. We've been through some tough times as a church. And we're going through a time when community, I, I sense this, I hear this from you, community matters a lot to us. Connecting with one another, sharing uh, support for one another, praying for one another. Those things matter more and more and more. And that, brothers and sisters, is part, and a, a wonderful part, a central part, of how you and I are blessed in Christ, by the resurrected Christ. Uh, you and I are blessed by the community that he has called into existence and that he has placed us in. Uh, we're, we're also blessed by our connection with Christ. You know, it says he was, uh, verse 51, he, he was parted from them, he was carried up into heaven. And I remember years and years and years ago, this was back when I was a whippersnapper, and I, I went to an Ascension Day service and uh, the preacher that day talked about the ascension, and the, the preacher was describing it in, in terms of a, of a rocket ship taking off. And uh, actually, the preacher, who was a bit of a liberal, was saying how silly it is that, that Christians have this sort of idea of, of Jesus' ascending being like a rocket ship taking off and going into the sky. And, and uh, he was kind of poking fun at, at traditional Christians who have this idea of an ascension where Jesus you know, sort of propels into outer space. And probably, if we were honest, some of us kind of have imagery like that in our heads. Uh, there, there are paintings, beautiful paintings of Jesus propelling up into the uh, cosmos, and we can have those pictures in our heads. But actually... Um, that's not really what's being described here. Uh, for instance, the word up in verse 51 is, is, is um, a manuscript question mark. That, that's sort of been added into the, into the Greek. It, it's, it's not really describing the geography of it. What it's describing is this, the, the uh, sense in which Jesus' presence with them changes. He is taken into heaven. He's carried into heaven. Um, maybe a slightly more sophisticated way of thinking of it is sort of like the clouds in, in some passages we read in Acts, we read in, in other passages. Matthew has a version of this. The clouds are used to describe what happens to Jesus. It's not so much that he jets up like a, like a, uh, a rocket, but that the clouds, which in the Old Testament represent the glory of God, uh, Jesus is absorbed in his resurrection flesh, in his reality, his physicality. He is, he's, he, he is transformed into another 
way, another sense of being. And it's not as though we are uh, separated from him, like he's living in a, in, a, in a cosmic Buckingham Palace somewhere, and he's benignly reigning from a throne room in some geographic uh, London uh, cut off from us, and we're separated from him, and, and uh, that's the way he reigns over us in his resurrection. No, this cosmic coronation doesn't tell us that Jesus goes away from us, but actually at the ascension, he is now able to be with all of us. He is with all of us. He's not in a celestial palace somewhere. He reigns from among us. He walks among us. He, he makes himself known among us. In fact, Paul says, we, we become, in a sense, part of his body. We're as intimately connected to the resurrected Christ as we are to our own bodies. That's how connected we are with, us, with him. That is how much he is with us. So he's not less with us after his ascension. He is, in a sense, even more with us. Because in the resurrection, in the ascension of Christ, part of what changes about his reality is that he's able to be with all of us. He's able to be with us here at Metrocrest. He's able to be with those worshiping him across town. He's able to be with those in London who are celebrating the coronation of their new king. He's able to be with Christians on the other side of the world. He's with all of us. By the power of the Spirit, Jesus, the ascended Lord who reigns over everything, now is with his people in the most intimate way possible. And we are with him in the most intimate way possible. We are connected with him. And brothers and sisters, that is possible because Christ ascended. His his kingdom was made manifest in a new and deeper way. His kingdom, which he brought as he entered the world, the first thing he said when he was preaching was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the beginning of his ministry, way back at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus began his ministry by saying, the kingdom of heaven is here. And at the ascension, he begins to make that more and more and more a lived out experience. And the wonderful thing to think about in that context is that the the, the one who is here with us blesses us. The last thing the disciples saw him doing in his flesh, he continued to do, and he continues to do today. Good times, when it's sunny and pretty and there's something beautiful to watch, something beautiful to be a part of, he blesses us, he's with us. And in the tough times, and there were many tough times for the apostles, the the very people to whom he offered this blessing, There were many tough times for them. And in the midst of even that, Jesus was present and Jesus blessed. You know, I don't know that we take that to heart enough. I mean, how comforting that is. How comforting it is to know that Jesus is with us and that he blesses us. How inspiring and encouraging and strengthening it is to know that Jesus Christ is with us 
and that he blesses us. Our church, I think, our church here at Metrochrist, we, we want to grab hold to that promise. That we're living out the, the life of Jesus. And as we do that, brothers and sisters, he will bless us. So, the resurrected Christ blessed his disciples. The resurrected Christ blesses his disciples still. The very last two verses of Luke's gospel describe the response of the disciples to the blessing of Christ. It says in verse 52, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Isn't it interesting? The, the blessing which Jesus pours out on his disciples the blessing which he extends to them, that blessing overflows through them and is something they do. They bless God in the temple. The same blessing which Jesus gives them, they return to God in the temple. What is the temple? The temple is the the physical representation of God being with his people. And on Ascension Day, after they see the amazing, glorious, overwhelmingly beautiful, awesome ascension of Christ as he is transformed before them, made real to them in a new and deeper way than ever before. After that, their response is to go to the temple, the ancient symbol of God's presence with Israel. They go to the temple and they worship Jesus in Jerusalem. They go to the city of of the God of the covenant, and they worship Jesus. Um, Worship is the generic word to describe the response of a believer to the blessing of Jesus. Jesus' whole life was a blessing. His birth was a blessing. His work among his disciples was a blessing. It was a blessing that was over time revealed to the disciples. Of course, it reached its climactic point on Good Friday when Jesus blessed his people, blessed his disciples by dying for them. And it came to climactic conclusion in the resurrection when when the crucified Christ is shown to be the resurrected Christ. And then it reaches climactic conclusion when the resurrected Christ becomes the ascended Christ Uh, one of my favorite theologians Greg Beale describes this as not three different things but three aspects of the same thing Jesus's life followed by these three points his crucifixion his resurrection his ascension this is the the resurrection ascension event the crucifixion resurrection ascension event where Christ's Life of blessing is made revealed to his disciples. And what do they do? And uh, We read about this at the conclusion of of, uh, all the resurrection stories. A sense of awe and wonder. And over and over again, the gospel writers use this word worship. They were brought to worship by what they had witnessed in the resurrection Christ. And specifically here, they're brought to worship 
as he is, if you will, crowned among them. He had been king. He had been king, but he was crowned among them in glory as they, as they saw him transformed. I mentioned uh, Zadok the priest handles beautiful anthem. That's a YouTube clip that's worth listening to. It is a beautiful piece of music, sometimes hard to understand. But as I said, really all that Handel was doing, he took an English verse of the Bible and he wrote music to it. And so at every coronation for every English king since uh, uh, George II, they've sung this beautiful hymn, Zadok the Priest. And it's Zadok the Priest and Nathan the Prophet anointed Solomon king. And the people rejoiced and said, and if you, know the, if you know the anthem, he takes and rejoiced and made those two words into about, I don't know, it feels like two or three minutes of this rejoice. I'm not going to attempt to sing it, all right, don't worry. Uh, but listen to it, it's so beautiful. Rejoice, 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 and said, and the words are, you've always heard God save the king, long live the king. Those are words that come from the Bible. Long live the king, long live Solomon. Those were the words in the Bible to describe the reaction of the people to their new king and their, the, the realization of the, who the king was. And, and it was accompanied with this idea of joy, rejoicing. Well, that's the reaction of the disciples who'd seen Jesus in this, in this way of of expressing himself that connected to Aaron and the Old Testament, the promise of God throughout the Old Testament, the promise of God to David, the promise revealed when Solomon was crowned as king. Well, that's the way they respond. In worship, it says, with great joy. Christian worship True Christian worship is accompanied with this idea of great joy. Worship can't be reduced to, to merely liturgy. Now, sometimes I think we get liturgy and worship confused. Uh, liturgy is meant to help us worship. Um, liturgy may be an aspect of worship, but it's not the same thing as worship. You can go through liturgy and not be worshiping. And you can go through liturgy without being joyful. Now, one of the gauges I carry around in my head is, you know, Christian worship should, should show joy, shouldn't it? Shouldn't Christian worship show joy? Well, that's how the disciples respond. They, they worship the resurrected Christ. They worship the crowned Christ. They burst, if you will, forth in joyful worship. Now, one of my, my prayers for us here at MetroCrest is, I love our worship, by the way. Nick, man, you guys do a fantastic job. We're, the ble we're blessed by many years of, 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 of uh, worship that encourages and edifies. My prayer, I guess, would be that we would just grow and grow and grow in that. Because, you know, one of the most attractive evangelistic things we can do is worship the Lord. That is magnetic to the watching world. The, the world's a pretty sad place. Even its, even its happy things can turn really ugly really quick. Uh, there's a cheapness sometimes to the, to the happiness of the world. There's a, 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 a thinness. There's a pretending about it sometimes. Well, 
authentic Christian worship will always be filled with joy because it actually flows from gratitude and praise to God for what he has done for us in Jesus. And that's what we're trying to do in our corporate worship here. We're, we're trying to, to express, like Handel did in our own way, to express the joy of the worship of the God who blesses us in Christ. It's not, it's not something we take lightly. We, we try very hard to communicate that. Uh, as Nick and his team are up here leading us in corporate worship, their goal is to help you and me to, to reflect on. The words we sing are carefully chosen. We choose words very carefully. And then they accompany that with music performed as well as we can. And the intention of that, the intention of that is not to draw attention to them, It's the last thing they want to do. They want to draw attention to Jesus. And they want us to respond in joyful worship. The thing about joyful worship is you can joyfully worship at a funeral of someone you love. In fact, if you think about it, there's no greater time to joyfully worship than when you say goodbye to someone you love in Christ to know that it's as hard as it is to say goodbye, we will see one another again. And that's a special kind of joy. That's a, that's a deep down joy. And that's how the disciples responded. They responded to the resurrected Christ and his blessing by worshiping him. And that, brothers and sisters, is a sense in which Christ was shown at his coronation celebration. Sort of this moment in time that captures what has happened and what is true and what is real cosmically. Case can be made that the ascension, I've I've seen the case made recently, that the ascension here at the end of Luke's gospel uh, is, and it's recorded in Matthew and John as well, they record versions of this, Matthew very explicitly, that this is, if you will, the kind of the, the ontological fulcrum. Remembering you can't really separate crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. But this, this moment, in a sense, becomes the fulcrum of everything. Everything revolves around what happens to Jesus over this very, very busy weekend and the weeks that followed. What happened to Jesus becomes the center of our life as individuals and as a community. Well, um, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the blessing that he brings us. Thank God for the strength that he gives us. May his strength make it possible for you and me to live lives of obedience, lives of praise, lives of worship, lives of joy. As we do that, he will use us, as he promises his disciples, he will use us to be his witnesses.